So good morning, everyone. It's indeed my privilege once again to stand before you and share from God's word. And I can assure you this morning that my assignment is a daunting one compared to the last time I was here on this podium wearing my gumboots. <laughs> if I needed your prayers then, <laughs> I need your prayers even more this morning. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by your circumstances, believing no one else has experienced and suffered in the same way? Did it seem as if no one could possibly understand your pain? Do you even wonder why life sometimes seems unfair, given that some people seem to get everything they want and never seem to have any real problems, while others seem to endlessly struggle all their lives in spite of their ingenuity, perseverance, and in spite of being hardworking people, they just continue to face one challenge after another. Some seem even to get away with inflicting pain on the innocent without experiencing any punishment and return. As God turned his back on his children who are suffering, or is there a purpose in the pain, or could pain possibly be seen as a gift from God to fulfill his sovereign plan and purposes for his children? How can we face the injustices and suffering of this world while clinging to prayer, faith, and pinning our hopes in our all-powerful God? Thankfully, I am delighted to inform you that such kind of questions which we all wrestle with and much more are all addressed in God's authoritative and inspired word of God for our benefit to help us gain a biblical understanding of God's perspective of our, of our struggles. And so, it is my sincere hope that this morning as we work our way through the first chapter from the book of 1 Samuel, we'll discover for ourselves how to respond like Anna did when we find ourselves in the midst of difficult challenges. And hopefully, we'll find courage for enduring faithfully to the end. Now, it is common knowledge that as one scans through the book of 1 Samuel, it is common knowledge that the choices people make say a lot about their character. And indeed, the book of 1 Samuel is full of exciting stories of people who made choices. Some people made good choices, which became a blessing to themselves and their communities. And some people made bad choices, which they regretted later on. And the first significant choice recorded for us in 1 Samuel, the first significant choice recorded for us in 1 Samuel was made by Hannah, a noble 
dignified, righteous, decent, gracious, and a godly Jewish woman who was initially unable to have children but chose to cry out to God for a child. And indeed, God heard a prayer and granted her a request. And so, to demonstrate a gratitude as a token of appreciation and of being grateful to God for his goodness, Anna then dedicated her only child at a time, Samuel, to the Lord from the time he was born. And so Samuel grew up among the priests at the tabernacle and he was eventually became the leader of the nation who was profoundly used by God as a prophet and as an instrument in God's hand. Samuel, of course, saw the rise and fall and succession of kings of Israel, starting from Saul, who was the first king of Israel, to David, and Samuel presided over many significant ecclesiastical and religious events during his time. We are told, as we read through the book of 1 Samuel, that near the end of Samuel's life, the Israelites rejected Samuel's sons as judges over Israel and asked to appoint a king over them just as other nations. Samuel, however, warned them, the Israelites, that a king would oppress them, but they chose to have one anyway. And therefore began the history of Israel's kings. And so God chose and gave them a tall, handsome man named Saul to be Israel's first king. At first, Saul appeared to make good decisions. But soon, he began to make some very bad choices. And God brought an end to his reign. David, as a shepherd boy, that shepherd boy from, the, from Bethlehem, was chosen to take Saul's place. And indeed, Saul made several attempts on David's life. But by the end of the book of 1 Samuel, we are told that Saul and his sons were dead. And David was in line to become the next king. Now, much can be said with regards to the people and events recorded for us in 1 Samuel. But suffice to say that the overriding theme is that down through the ages, all the choices people make and the consequences they endure does not disposition the sovereignty of God, for God stays the same and controls the events of the world of human and controls human events. And so for those who choose to put their trust in God, will find comfort and courage to faithfully endure to the end. And so with that overview in mind with respect to the book of 1 Samuel, let's then have a look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and read from verse 1 all the way through to verse 20. By the way, let me encourage you to have your Bibles open and follow the reading or perhaps focus on the screen as the passage we are about to read contains some unpronounceable names. And so I don't want you to lose in translation, 
or left you guessing what I wanted to, to say. I tried to pick up some pronunciation lessons from Andrew this morning. He gave me some tips. I consulted Mike. I couldn't understand his accent. And so I would encourage you that you focus uh, on the screen as we read through this. And so, reading from First Samuel chapter 1, and the Bible says, And there was a certain man from Haramatahim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, a son of uh, Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, and was called. Uh, he had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from this town to worship and sacrifice the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Anna, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, a rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Wherever she, Anna went up to the house of the Lord, a rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In a deep anguish, Anna prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. And she kept on praying to the Lord. Eli observed a mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart. And her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord. Hannah replied, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant 
find favor in your eyes. And then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Anna, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked for the Lord for him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Lord, I pray that as I stand before this, your people, once again, I do not have the courage. I don't have the eloquency to express your word. But I pray that Lord may help me, that I may be able to deliver and speak clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of you who may wonder what my subject for my sermon is all about, I want to talk about what I'm calling the gift of pain. The gift of pain. And I want to see that by seeing the reality through the conflict, through the story of Anna. The gift of pain, seeing the reality through the story of Anna is the title of my sermon. And to do that, we want to, first of all, look at the conflict in Elkanah's family and then the source of Anna's pain. And so I want to draw attention now, firstly, to the first eight verses. Now, I know that the subheading from the NIV Bible, with respect to the passage which I've just read, speaks of the birth of Samuel. And so while that is true, but there are so many issues covered in this passage. In fact, the first eight verses of 1 Samuel chapter 1 the first eight verses is an expose, exposing the conflict within the family of this religious man, Elkanah. And the conflict manifested itself in several subtle ways, but mostly through Penina's irritations and provocations towards Hannah. But those provocations were merely symptoms. And therefore, our task is to figure out the root cause to the conflict which caused tremendous pain to Hannah in particular. And so let's observe together some family feud and dynamics playing out. Firstly, let's, I mean, let me draw your attention to the first one and two verses where we read the following, verses one and two. And there was a certain man from Ramatia, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elhu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, one was called Hannah, and the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Anna had none. Now, a quick look at verses 1 and 2 makes one wonder. And say, what for heaven's sake are these verses doing in the Bible? I mean, these two verses tell us about a man who had two wives. In addition to that, this man had a couple of relatives 
with unpronounceable names. Here we have the man Elkana with ancestors named Jerehoram, Elihu, Tehu, and Zuf, and Ephraimite in his background. So what's the big deal about a genealogy of four generations of ancestors? What do these names of otherwise unknown ancestors have to do with the story of Anna? Well, the answer is, if you are an Israelite living more than 2,000 years ago in Canaan, those names meant a lot. And so those names mean that the writer wants you to think of Elihu, for instance, as a real important man. And so listing more than two generations of ancestors in a man's genealogy indicates to the reader that the person is a significant individual. More than that, if you're a kind of a person with keen interest in ancient Israelite genealogy, the names tell you that the man is a member of the high priestly clan that is a descendant of Israel's first high priest named Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. And you can check that one from First Chronicles chapter 6. But verse 2 is even more interesting as we observe that Elkanah was an important man and a priest, and yet he had two wives. If indeed one could ask, or argue, Elkanah was a godly man. If indeed Elkanah was a godly man, an important man for that matter, why on earth did he have two wives? Can we use the example of Elkanah to justify polygamy or bigamy today? And of course, the answer is no, no way. Not unless you're something else. But perhaps we can briefly reflect on verse 2 again to learn something about ancient Israel. You see, back in the day, within that society, it was considered of vital importance for the marriage to produce a male offspring, to pass along the family name and wealthy, as well as to have someone to care for the parents in their old age. And so if a man's first wife, and in all probability it seems here that Hannah was that first wife, could not produce children, and then it was expected that a man would take another wife. We find a similar situation in the life of Abraham and Sarai, recorded for us in Genesis chapter 16, and the family drama which followed as soon as that maid servant named Hagar became aware that she was carrying Abraham's seed and potential heir to their estate. To Agar's disbelief and pain, Salai simply increased the pressure in the kitchen on both Abraham and turned the table upside down. And as they say, the rest is history. As Agar was put in a right place and fled for a dear life, eventually giving birth to Ishmael somewhere in the desert. Now here is the possibility, brethren, behind the events of verses 2. 
In more likelihood, most commentators say it might have been experienced by Anna. It's that like every other little girl, this is what could have happened as events unfolded in verse 2. Like every other little girl in our society, Hannah looked forward to an early marriage to an older man. Her father would arrange for her to be married to an adult male as soon as her as soon as body showed evidence of being able to bear children. Now, while young marriages like this would be condemned and criminal in Western cultures today, it was considered a good thing back in the day in ancient Israel. In Anna's case, it meant that she would be married to a respected and important man, a member of the high priestly clan. It also meant Anna would always have food and clothing and that she would be able to do the most important thing a woman could possibly do in that society, which was to produce children to be fruitful and to multiply. And so it was a big deal. It was a big deal that every time a woman gave birth to another child in ancient Israel, she increased the prestige of her husband and the clan and consequently raised their own status within the family. A married woman who was barren, on the other hand, was considered cursed by, by God. A barrenness meant that the just and righteous God had found some good reason to close a womb. I personally don't believe in that notion because children are a gift from God, the Lord gives and the Lord withholds. But that was what was believed, that if in those days you could not conceive and have a child, there are those that believed that the just and righteous God had found some good reason to close a home. More than that, a barren wife could be expected to experience feelings of guilty because she was consuming a husband's resources without giving him what he deserved the most, a son. And so a barren wife might even cause others to question a husband's ability to father children, therefore bringing shame on him and consequently the entire clan. It was that complicated. Now, Anna had been married to Elkanah for a number of years, but she had never produced even one child for her husband. For Anna, every new month without a pregnancy meant a renewal of anxiety, guilty, and feelings of inadequacy and shame. And who could Hannah blame for a gift of pain disguising itself as barrenness? Could Hannah blame herself or a family lineage? Could Hannah blame a husband? Or could Anna possibly blame God who closed a womb? Now, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, Hannah's name meant lady of grace or favor. But I guess, and I can assure you, Hannah didn't feel like a recipient of God's gracious favor. It means that after several years of living with his, with his barren wife, 
This righteous man, Elkanah, did what most men would have done in that culture. He made the decision to take a second wife. And so, it was that Penina joined the family, and that was bad news in the making. Penina soon solved Elkanah's problems. She gave birth to one baby after another, providing the family with potential heirs, workers, and children who would someday care for their parents in their old age. Everyone in the clan had the reason to rejoice. Everyone, that is, except Hannah. She was still living in a prison of shame, guilty, and emotional pain. And so the author of this story moves now the story to forward by noting that the good and righteous man Elkanah did everything possible to comfort his wife Hannah. And so we read from verse 3 that yea, after yea, this man went out from his town to, his, to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh where uh, those two sons of Eli were priests of the Lord. And so you see the next picture of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting that was set up, just to give you an idea of where Elkanah took his family to go and offer, to go and worship and sacrifice. It is evident that Elkanah was a devout man who every day went to Shiloh to worship the Lord. Because in his day, that city was Israel's central worship site. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was located, and that's where Israelite males were expected to go at least three times a year. On at least one of those journeys to Shiloh each year, Elkanah would take his entire family. There at, at Shiloh, he and his family would live for a week in a temporary shelter, reenacting their ancestors' exodus, experiencing that taken place hundreds of years earlier. And so as part of the religious week-long family vacation, if we may call it that way, Eli and the other worshippers would present animal sacrifice to the Lord. Both church historians and Bible scholars affirm that they could be expected to offer up three animals to God. One that would save as a burnt offering, one as a sin offering, and one as a peace offering. The burnt offering would have all the meat portions burned to ash at the altar. Now, in the language of sacrifice in that day, the burnt offering said to God, through this animal's death, please accept me as a living sacrifice in service of you. The sin offering spoke a different message, and it was this. It said, by this sacrifice, I declare that I'm a sinner worthy of death. This animal's death satisfies that demand in my place. And so with the sin offering, the most sacred parts of the animal 
We are bent up on the water, on the altar, with the other portions being given to the officiating priests. The peace offering's message was one of thanksgiving. It saved as an expression of gratitude for the restoration of the right relationship between God and the one offering the animal. And so the third sacrificial animal was a party animal. Since the man who brought the animal would be permitted to eat most of the animal's meat, and Elkanah naturally shared the meat from the peace offering with his family as the centerpiece of a special celebratory meal. It seems that he used the event as a sort of, as someone said, family awards, dinner, whereby he rewarded each wife for their hard work over the past year and for the blessing of children brought into the family by the wives. And, it, and so it was that, according to the scripture in verse 12, whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Anna, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Interestingly, the Hebrew text does not actually state that Anna received a double portion from Elkanah. Instead, some commentary says that she received a portion of two nostrils. In other words, this means that Anna got only one portion a portion which seems reasonable since she had failed to provide a husband with any children. Of course, Elkanah did not give her this relatively small portion because he hated her. In fact, the Bible records that he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. We read from verse 13 that, but it did feel like love to Anna. It didn't feel like love to Anna. And it provided the perfect opportunity for Anna's rival named Penina, who would taunt her severely just to provoke her, because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. And so wherever she went up to the Lord's house, a rival taunted her in this way every year, and Anna wept and would not eat. What is rather interesting to note here is that for Anna, these events, the meals that were supposed to be the happiest and best of each year, repeatedly saved as the single most humiliating and painful of Anna's life. Once a year, every year, for embarrassing and shameful condition, a condition or which was not of her own making, imposed on her by Yahweh himself. Interestingly, the very God who commanded Anna to be fruitful and multiply, as recorded in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, had also kept Hannah from conceiving. How could a truly good God command a person to do something and then make it impossible for them to fulfill 
that command. And so Elkanah, being the good man that he was, tried his level best to do some damage control using typical male logic. He did his best to help Hannah get over the unending humiliation associated with being a married woman. But he failed. He said in verse 8, Hannah, why are you crying? A husband, Elkanah, asked, why don't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Clearly, Elkanah's efforts came up short. It is obvious to me that like most men in all of human history, Elkanah was virtually clueless when it came to understanding women. Hannah, however, could not tell her husband that he was a failure as a comforter. It's because in ancient culture, women would not have had the right to criticize their husbands any more than slaves would have the right to criticize their masters. To make matters worse, marriage counselors who could have guided this couple through this crisis did not exist in the ancient world. And as far as we know, Hannah had no female friend or confidant who could lend a sympathetic ear only this mercilessly or to fatal rival. It would seem, therefore, that Anna was living in isolation, taking in all the pain. Anna ate and drank at Shiloh, as recorded in verse 9. She got up. But where could she go? She couldn't return home. There was no shopping malls or coffee shops where she could go and hang out. She could have made the most desperate of all choices and ended a life, but she didn't. She could have cursed the day she was born like Job did. She could have cursed the day of her wedding, but she didn't. So let me draw your attention to how Anna responded to such a predicament she found herself in. And perhaps we can appreciate the significance of Anna's response to such provocations. So let's look briefly at how Anna responded and the significance of her response. So we read from verse 9 that once when they had finished eating and drinking Shiloh, Anna stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In a deep anguish, Anna prayed to the Lord Almighty, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. And so we are told that she got up, but where could Anna go? She couldn't return home. As I said, it was a way too far and dangerous for her to do that. Obviously, she was not living in Cape Town with plenty of shopping malls nearby or coffee shops like the way we have them at Howard Center where she could go and hang out with friends or even strangers. Hannah had limited options and she could have made the most desperate of all choices and ended her own life by committing suicide, but she didn't. Thankfully, Anna went to one place in the whole world 
She went to one place in the whole world where she could find solace, where she could find peace and tranquility and comfort and genuine help. She went to the Lord. And there in the house of the Lord, she would find God, the only one of Israel, who would listen with infinite care to her tear-stained words. There in the house of the Lord, Anna would find God, the Holy One of Israel, who had the power to change a deepest hate into a greatest joy. No wonder the psalmist exclaimed elsewhere that I would rather be a doorkeeper for the day in the house of the Lord is better than a thousand elsewhere. And so we are told that Anna prayed. So if you can go to the next slide. And coincidentally, the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorside. By the t- coincidentally, the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's tabernacle. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord with many tears, making a vow. She pleaded, Lord of hosts, if you take notice of your servant affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I'll give him all, to the, all the days of his life and he will save you as we already alluded to. And so Anna prayed to the Lord and she prayed with an intensity and focus that was possible only for a person who was living with an ending agony with a soul. What we hear in Anna's incredible prayer is something truly striking. We hear the words of one who has not been destroyed. I want you to see, to put this, uh, the, the, where Anna's praying. And so Anna prayed. Prayed to the Lord with an intensity and focus that was possible only for a person who was living with an ending agony with a soul. What we hear in Anna's incredible prayer is something truly striking. We hear the words of one who has not been destroyed, but deepened, not shattered, but transformed by the gift of pain coming from the Lord himself. Indeed, the Lord had given Hannah the priceless but never requested gift of pain. By living in ancient Israel as a married woman denied the gift of motherhood, Hannah experienced unlenting humiliation and degradation. But from the pain of barrenness, Hannah also learned one of the most important truths any could-be parent could ever learn. Children are a gift that can come only from God. And while parents have the joy of nurturing and raising them, children are God's property lent to parents for only a few years. Thankfully, the Lord understood Hannah and her pain Suddenly, sadly, the greatest religious leader of a day, Eli the priest, did not. For we read from verses 12 to 17 the following. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her lips. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and scolded her. How long are you going to be drunk? 
Get rid of your wine? No, my lord, Hannah replied, I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think, don't think me, don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the petition you have requested from him and may your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way and she ate and she was no longer downcast. Like Eli, sometimes God's people, ministers and caring lay persons alike, believers, fail to hear or understand the desperate heart cries of our neighbors. We want to help the people around us, but we don't know enough about the hidden hates to craft an appropriate response. As a result, our well-intended ways fail to directly address a needy person's desperate condition. However, we, like ignorant Eli, can still do at least two helpful things. We can speak a caring word, go in peace, and we can affirm and underscore their efforts to reach out to God for help. May the God of Israel grant the petition you have requested from him. So because of Anna's good response to provocations, she had an encounter that day with God who listens and acts. More than that, Anna was touched by the words of a supportive uh, servant of God, and these experiences transformed her completely. The Bible records that she was no longer looked, she no longer looked despondent, and so Anna left God's house with hope, and her life would forever be better. May we leave God's house this morning with hope. And so as we begin to wrap up my message this morning, let's lastly look at the final episode in this story, the conception and birth of a child, Samuel, which literally means that was the solution Anna was looking for. We read from verse 19 that early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered Hannah. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So at the end of the family's religious celebration at Shiloh, they returned to their home in Ramah, and in the course of time, the loving relationship between Elkanah and his first wife was visited with joy of a divine miracle as the Lord remembered Hannah. Now, the Hebrew word translated remembered in verse 19 deserves some special attention. To say the Lord remembered was to say that the Lord was about to do something especially good and important. But we don't have time to unpack that except to say that this vibe was by, used by biblical narrators to indicate to the readers and listeners in one of the fact that God was about to act in a decisive 
and beneficial way to fulfill a commitment he had previously made. You can think of Noah, our God, remember Noah and ended the flood in Genesis chapter 8. You can think of how God remembered Abraham when God delivered Lot from Sodom, when Abraham delivered Lot from Sodom, recorded for us in Genesis chapter 19. Or you can think of how God remembered Isaac's childless wife, Rachel, when Rachel became pregnant with twins, recorded for us in Genesis chapter 30. You can even think of Israel when God began to deliver his people from the Egyptian slavery. So to say the Lord remembered was to say the Lord was about to do something especially good and important. In this context, the Lord remembered Hannah and she conceived and gave birth to a son as recorded for us in verse 20. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies, the mighty warrior in the universe, at least listened to the tearful request of a socially insignificant, barren, peasant Jewish woman and granted a request. And to memorize Anna's courageous request, one forged in the finance of emotional pain, God and, and God's amazing grace, the son would be named Samuel. That child, conceived by faith and given by the grace of God, would someday stand as the greatest spiritual leader in Israel history since the days of Moses. That child would become Israel's last and greatest judge and save as Israel kingmaker. And so, I leave you with two questions. First, has God given you the gift of pain? Is there some situation or person in your life that saves as a constant source of trouble and emotional distress? If so, I have a second question. What are you doing with that gift of pain? You know, God could have taken that condition or person out of your life, but he hasn't done it just yet. So, let the gift of pain given to you, as it was given to Anna, let him use that condition or situation, whatever it is, as a shaping tool in your life. Let the gift of pain from God teach you perseverance, but most of all, let it arouse in you a deepened awareness of your need for God in your life. But again, remember, when we said that the statement that the Lord had crossed Anna's womb does not mean that Anna was being punished for some sin, it simply means that the Lord had not given her children at the right time. And so, let the gift of pain from God inspire you in a greater agency in your prayers and give you a clearer vision of God as the one warrior in the world, strong enough to stand with you through every trial of life and give you ultimate victory. Let Anna's story become yours, and therefore let us never grow tired of prayer, for a prayer of a righteous man avails much or works miracles. Like Anna, don't lose heart. Like Anna, don't lose hope. 
like Anna, never give up. Let's pray.